are at a uh, really a, a, a crossroads. We have, for the last 14 months or so, been living in John's Gospel. Can you believe it's been that long? We took a few breaks for Advent and things, but for over a year, we've been living in John's Gospel. We have been confronted with the way that Jesus said and did things that, to any Jewish person in the first century, only God should say and do. Jesus did things and said things that only God should be able to say and do. We've witnessed how Jesus, this God-man, gave himself over in death in order to rescue the world. We've seen Jesus' invitation to enter into a new kind of life, a new quality of life that the Greek describes as Zoe life or eternal life. And we've seen how Jesus has called people to follow him. And now you and I represent those people whom he calls to be witnesses throughout the world. To share this good news in word and deed. We've witnessed Jesus' life from incarnation when he left the Father to become a, a person with skin on, a human being. We've seen his life through crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. But throughout this 14-month journey, we skipped over a chapter, chapter 17. In fact, John 17 is, is, to me, it's a sermon series in itself. So we're actually going to do like a little mini-series right here. It's going to be three weeks long through John 17. And for my money, John 17 might be one of the most intimate chapters in all of Scripture. You see, this chapter, we have more than just a teaching of Jesus. We have more than just an account of his signs and wonders. In John 17, we have a window into the heart of God. Let me explain. Have you ever wondered what matters most to Jesus? Have you ever wondered, what well, Jesus, what is your will? What is your reason for being? Have you ever just wanted a glimpse into the heart of God? Well, here it is. Here it is. Because like flies on a wall, we get to overhear one of the most intimate exchanges in the universe. The Son praying to the Father. The Son praying to the Father. Prayer, to me, is one of the most intimate things we can do. I mean, besides like sexual intimacy, prayer is the bearing of our soul with another person and with God. Sure, we learn to pray silently, or we have the pastoral prayer here in church, or we, we pray in our small groups, and there's set aside times and ways that we pray, and, and we've kind of learned how to pray just enough to seem like we're being intimate, but hold enough back to where we're not really putting ourselves out there. But think how difficult it can be when you're praying with a spouse, or you're praying with a boyfriend or girlfriend, or you're praying with a, a, a good friend, and you're, you, you're, you want to bear it all before them and say how you really feel before God. Think how scary that can be, how intimate it is. This is exactly what Jesus does for us, and John's written it all down. In Scripture, we see where Jesus prays. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, he pulls away all the time and says Jesus withdrew and he prayed to the Father. But we don't really know what he said or we don't know much of what he was talking about. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. He teaches them to pray. But here in John 17, we have a different kind of Lord's Prayer. It's the Lord's other prayer, where it's actually Him speaking directly to the Father. He bears.
shares his heart and his motives to his disciples. And the church gets to hear it all throughout the ages, even at Letter Street's Covenant Church, June 27, 2010. So are you ready to hear the heart of Jesus? Genius. Okay, let's stand and we'll read John 17, verses 1 through 8. You can follow along if you like, or maybe just let these words wash over you. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting his eyes up to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I've manifested your name to men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they've come to know that everything you've given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I've given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. Jesus, thank you for sharing the depths of your soul with us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us as we dig into your word. And pray that it would reveal what your deepest desire is, that we could know it and follow it as well. Amen. You may be seated. They say if you really want to know a person, if you really want to know what a person loves or what's important to them, you look at two things. You look at their pocketbook, their checkbook record, and you look at their calendar. Where do people spend their time and where do people spend their money? I agree with that, but I would add one more thing. What do people pray about? What do people pray about? I think you can learn a lot about a person by their prayer life. When we look at the Lord's other prayer, we see what's most important to Jesus. In both the Lord's prayer in Matthew and in Luke, and this prayer in John 17, we see Jesus beginning his prayer to his Father. Immediately, this tells us something about Jesus that's very important. He's relational. He's relational. He doesn't use uh, just a generic term, oh God. He doesn't talk about uh, prayer in a contractual way. Give me this, give me that. He addresses his Father first. He's relational. By addressing God as Father, we can learn at least three things about Jesus' relationship with God. These three, these three things directly apply to you and me. Because in the scripture that Marcia read that precedes verse, uh, chapter 17, Jesus tells us that through relationship with Him, we can pray directly to the Father as well. We can pray directly to the Father as well. So what are these three things we learn about Jesus' relationship with the Father? First of all, His relationship with God the Father is affectionate. 
It's affectionate. You see, fatherhood in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, in households, it, it carried with it different ideals depending on which culture you were in. So in ancient Roman culture, the father was the potter familias. That's kind of a funny word. The potter familias. The, the father in a Roman household was typically cold, authoritarian. The mother was the only one who did any nurturing. And the father could actually have someone in his household killed because he felt like it. Slaves, children. Oftentimes they wouldn't even name children for the first couple of years to see if the father wanted to keep them around. But in Jewish households, it was different. I don't want to say it's just like it is here where, you know, Dads are lovey-dovey, but uh, it is definitely a warmer feel to fatherhood in Jewish households. Je Jesus calls his father Abba, which is Daddy. Now there are many Jewish prayers in in history where they call God Father, but nobody was calling God Abba. Jewish children would call their fathers Abba, and it was usually little children that would do it. And it was a term of endearment, of respect, of uh, approachability. When you called your, your father Abba, it was, imagine a child crawling up into your lap. It was this complete feeling of security and goodness and wholeness. To be invited then to call God Father means much more than just calling Him Dad like we do in our culture. It's an invitation to draw intimately close with God. That's what you and I get to do. Jesus' prayer teaches us that God is affectionate towards His children. He's approachable. He's loving. And for many who have had abusive fathers, and just to say it bluntly, none of us have had perfect fathers. God redefines the standard of what it means to be Father. He cannot be anything but good. It's His character. It's what He is. He is good through and through. He is safe. I've heard people say, I like Jesus, but I just can't get my head around God. Well, nobody can. Uh, he seems so distant. I like Jesus, but I don't really like God. Well, here's the good news. Jesus says in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus only did the things the Father would say and do. When we see Jesus in Scripture, the things that he did, the people he hung out with, the way that he loved and gave of himself, we see what the Father is like. So if you like Jesus, you like the Father. He's safe. He's approachable. Second, Jesus' use of the term Father also carried with it a sense of authority. So you've got this approachability, this I can come to my Abba Father, but it's also got a sense of authority. Jesus knew he was loved by his Father, which meant he could, he could willfully trust and submit his life to the things that the Father told him to do. Jesus so trusted the Father that he was willing to trust him to go to the cross. Trusting that it was the best thing, that the Father had it under control. 
also, we too, in prayer, we are to submit to the Father's authority because He desires my best. He desires your best. And let's face it, if we got all the stuff we ever wanted in prayer, the world would be a real mess, wouldn't it? How would that work? Like sports teams, they pray to win and then, I don't get that. But God knows what's best. God's know, And so sometimes we don't get the things that we pray for the way that we pray for them. Because our Father has our best in mind. Third, Jesus' prayer reveals that His most important task, his, His mission in life, His reason for being is one thing. To bring glory to the Father. To bring glory to the Father. In the first eight verses of John 17, the verses we're focusing on this evening, He uses the word glory or glorify five different times. So, what is glory? We better understand this word if it's one of the main themes throughout this section. What is glory? Let's face it, in our culture we often mistake fame for glory. We mistake fame for glory. Anybody, anybody can get famous. You don't have to have a particular talent. You don't have to stand for anything particularly good. You don't have to really be much of a person to be famous. In fact, if you have a camera and a, access to a computer, you could do something really stupid or something really sexy, which is also really stupid. So basically, just stick with the stupid thing. You could do something really stupid and put it on YouTube, and you could be famous. You could get all these clicks, and people would watch your video, and they, oh, that's that stupid person who skateboarded down a hill in an outhouse or something like that. Uh, I looked up, uh, yeah, wouldn't that be dumb? I've seen that, but I've seen that, anyway. Uh, I looked up who has the most followers on Twitter. For those of you who don't know Twitter, it's this, what is it? It's like, uh, <laughs> like you put one sentence on there about what you're doing. You know, you can, I am eating honey bunches of oats for breakfast, which I, I did today. I like that. Um, you know, and it's just like too much information. I don't really care that you're stuck in traffic or, or whatever. But Twitter is this, this thing. And the two most popular people, the ones with the most followers, any guesses on number one right now? Not, no, he's number two. Britney Spears is number one. Over 5,200,000-something thousand people are subscribed to her Twitter. So when she stubs her toe and writes something on Twitter, over 5 million people get this to their phone or whatever their device is. Ashton Kutcher has uh, 5,100,000 something. So he's number two. So when Ashton Kutcher posts, and what would he even post? Like, I burped or something like that. And 5 million people are going to get this post that Ashton Kutcher burped. Like, so strange to me. Over 5 million people subscribe to these things. And what do these famous people really do? Nothing. Maybe they're willing to be ridiculous on TV or they have the right look. But they really are just out to be famous to have a following, to have their name out there, to get the privileges. Worse yet, why do five million people care what Britney Spears ate for breakfast or Ashton Kutcher is doing tonight? I, that's, a, that's a whole other sermon. Fame. Fame is not glory. Fame is not glory. Glory 
is the weight of a person's character revealed. Glory is the person's the weight of a person's character revered. So you, everyone has some glory. You either have lots of it or you don't have much of it, but everyone's got it. It's the weight of your character revealed. And what we do in our culture is we're masters at masking our glory, aren't we? Because we want to put up a false front. We want to get famous. We want to get famous. Jesus is desiring the Father to be glorified. Do you know what that means? That means that people around the world would see God and know God for what He really is, not what we think He is. In fact, this is just in line with Jesus' other Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, where He begins, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's a, that's a request for the Father's name to be hallowed, to be holified throughout the world, that people would know Him as He really is. What the world needs more than anything, one could argue, and that's what I'm doing right now, what the world needs more than anything is to know, to know the glory of God. When we experience the weight, the splendor of His glory, it not only rightly puts us in our place, right? We're confronted with the glory of God, how He really is, His holiness and goodness and power and majesty. It would melt us to our knees, and rightly so. But at the same time, it does something else that maybe you weren't expecting. It gives you incredible Dignity. It gives you incredible dignity. Here's why. You and I are made in the image of this God who has all of this glory and weight of character and goodness and power and creativity. Okay? So if we are confronted, if the world, if beginning with you and me, if we're confronted with this glory, and we understand that dignity of being made in His image, we don't want anymore to seek for fame and do stupid things and just be known for trivial things. We would want to be more like that God, full of substance, full of lives that are full of meaning and, and goodness and creativity and beauty and adding something instead of taking away. And there'd be a lot less followers on Britney Spears' Twitter account. Jesus prayed, Abba, Abba, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even Jesus' own request that He be glorified is not for Him. It's that the Father would be glorified through Him. In this one sentence, the hour has come, glorify your Son that I may glorify you, in that one sentence is locked a theological powerhouse, a treasure. Listen, throughout John's Gospel, Jesus has used the term the hour as a way of talking about the cross. In the previous chapters, he's constantly saying, my hour's not come yet, the time is not here, my hour's not come yet. Now he's saying the hour is here. And the hour to go to the cross, to die, to be crucified. Now, if the hour is here, how could it be the hour for His glory? That makes no sense. How could crucifixion bring the Father glory? Two ways. First of all, 
Jesus revealed God's glory on the cross because God's definition of glory is different than ours. Jesus revealed God's glory on the cross because God's definition of glory is different, very different than ours. We get the definition of glory mixed up with fame. But even when we get it right sometimes, when we exalt good people, moral people, people that do well in the world, it always comes with these strings attached of privilege and insulation from society. And, and we exalt people and they begin to uh, you know, have servants basically and live the high life while other people suffer. God redefines glory in terms of service and sacrifice and love. God's glory is revealed in Jesus, the rabbi, washing his disciples' feet. No rabbi would ever do that in Jesus' day. It was the most degrading thing. God's glory is revealed in Jesus trusting the Father so much that He obeyed Him to the point of death. God's glory is revealed in sending His Son to die instead of every man, woman, and child because we deserve it. All people fall short of the glory of God. All people, I ultimately deserve death. But God's character, His glory is to save. God's character, what's deep inside his heart, is to save. He loved us so much that he sent his son in our place. And this fact brings glory to God. It reveals who he really is. But there's one more thing. Of course there is. Giving Jesus glory brings the Father glory because Jesus comes from the Father. Verse 5 reminds us that Jesus existed even before the world was. And John's first readers might have uh, thought of John's prologue when they heard this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being. That has come into being. Jesus is the eternally existing Word. He existed in glory and perfect relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit before time as we know it. And yet He chose to empty Himself as a sacrifice for us. And if these two truths about the Father's glory aren't enough, consider this. God is glorified in Jesus because Jesus has the authority to grant eternal life to you and I. All who believe in Him, He gives the authority, the right to become, to become children of God who can directly pray to God as Father. And what is eternal life? Jesus prayed, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. D.A. Carson, commentator, writes, Eternal life is not so much everlasting life. Meaning, eternal life is not so much that your life the way it is right now just keeps going and going and going and going. And for some of us, that wouldn't be so bad. But for most people in the world, that would not be great. Okay? So, eternal life is not so much that your life as it is right now just keeps going and going and going. 
as personal knowledge of the everlasting one. This knowledge of God the scriptures speak of is more than simply knowing about God, right? It's more than just intellectual knowledge about facts of God. Knowing God implies trust and faith and relationship. Knowing God is what we were created for. Knowing God is what we were created for. Not knowing about God. That helps. That helps us know God. But knowing God relationally is what we were created for. There's no higher mission in life. I, <laughs> after coming to that conclusion again for the first time, again, uh, this week, that rattles my priorities. If knowing God relationally is my, as a human being, my mission in life, my reason for being, I waste a lot of time doing some other things. Do you want to, do you want to know God? Do you desire to know Him? Listen to what J.I. Packer writes in his book, Knowing God, nonetheless. First, we must recognize how much we really lack knowledge of God. We must learn to measure ourselves. Not by our knowledge about God. Not by our gifts and responsibilities in the church. But by how we pray and what goes on in our hearts. Do you hear that? That's challenging. Many of us, I suspect, have no idea how impoverished we are at this level. You can hear him say it. And he means himself too. He's a very humble man. He says, let us ask the Lord to show us the depths of how much we don't know Him. Okay, I don't want to leave you there. So if you feel a little bit inadequate about how well you know God, there's good news for us, of course. This is the Gospel of John, not the mean text of John. First, we're reminded that we have been chosen out of the world. Okay? Now that's, that again can make you feel like, oh, how do I know? How do I know if I'm chosen? Well, i got some more good news for you. If you have a desire at all, or if you feel at all convicted by those previous words about knowing God, I pretty much guarantee God's working in your life. The scriptures tell us you cannot want to know God, you cannot seek God without Him drawing you to Himself. And I say this a lot, but I mean it a lot. I don't think you're here. I don't think you can come through the door and sit down unless God is already working in you in some way. So take heart. Take heart. God wants to reveal Himself to you. And He's working in your life. Second piece of good news is that you don't need any special qualification to know God. You don't need anything special to know Him. Listen to this last part of Jesus' prayer, uh, verses 6 through 8. Just listen to these words. Think of the disciples as you've come to know them throughout John's Gospel. Jesus prayed, I've manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. They've kept his word. Okay, we'll get to that. 
Now they've come to know that everything you have given me is from you. And the words which you gave me, I've given to them. And they received them. And truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. What? Are these the same disciples he's talking about who constantly misunderstand him? Are these the same guys who in just a few hours in the story are going to completely deny him? They're going to scatter when he gets arrested. Peter's going to deny that he's a disciple of Jesus three times. Are these those guys Jesus is talking about? About understanding his word? About receiving it? Yeah. The same guys. Jesus can pray these words about these very disciples. Because, no, they didn't intellectually understand everything about Jesus yet. That would have to wait till after his resurrection. And even the first few generations of disciples didn't have things like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And they didn't understand, nobody understands Trinitarian theology. But they didn't have these things necessarily worked up yet. But you know what they did have? They accepted Jesus' words, even if they didn't understand them fully. Okay, They may not have had their degrees in theology, but they trusted Jesus. And they followed Him when crowds and crowds and crowds of other disciples left Him. Right and left. When, when Jesus would say hard things. Hundreds of disciples left him. He looks at the twelve and says, Are you going to leave me too? Peter says, Where else will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Now, in the same breath, I could say Peter totally didn't get Jesus very well. He didn't understand a lot about Jesus, but he trusted him. He trusted that Jesus was from God. And that's what Jesus is praying about here. These disciples acted on their belief. So it's not so much about what you know or don't know about God, but how much you trust Him that defines whether or not you know Him. That's why as a church we seek not only to hear the gospel and to tell the gospel story week in and week out, but we try and find our place in the gospel story. And we try and live it out. Not so that we just understand it more, but that's so that we trust Him more and act on it more. And that, friends, is knowing God. If we're not engaged in the mission of God, then one could also argue maybe we don't know Him very well. Or if we do, we must not like Him very much. Now, two implications that you can customize for where you're at. First of all, glory. Glory. Knowing God will bring Him glory. Because to know Him is to love Him, and to love Him is to love what He loves, and that can only propel us out. To know Him is to love Him, and to love Him is to love what He loves, and that can only propel us out. Because you know what He loves? People. He loves our neighbors and the people you work with and the people in your family that you can't stand. And He loves everybody. 
I guess he even loves. <sighs> yeah. Soccer teams that lost and all that stuff. He loves everybody. It's going to propel us to action. So, if knowing is trusting and obeying, how might God be calling you to trust more fully? That's going to look different for everybody. We all have the areas that we're a little bit reluctant to trust God in. And here's one thing to look at. How are circumstances in your life right now, are there circumstances in your life right now through which, through which you might come to know God more, more fully? You could think about that this week. What's going on in your life right now that might be an opportunity to trust Him more, to know Him more? And number two, I just think that John 17 is a gift. It's a real gift that we have written down a conversation, a prayer from God the Son to God the Father. I just want to encourage you to live in it the next few weeks. Pray it. Pray it a few times a week as we are going to be discussing it in, uh, in worship for the next couple of Sundays. Would you pray with me?